Daniel chapter 7, uh, verses 19 through 23, and 26 through 27, and Matthew 6.10. <clears throat> but I wanted to make certain about the fourth beast, so very terrible and different from the others, devouring and crushing with its iron teeth and bronze claws, and trampling with its feet what was left. I wanted to know about the ten horns on its head, and the other one that sprang up before which three horns fell, about the horn with the eyes and the mouth that spoke arrogantly, which appeared greater than the other horns. For as I watched, that horn made war against the holy ones and was victorious until the ancient one arrived. Judgment was pronounced in favor of the holy ones of the Most High. And the time came when the holy ones possessed the realm. The interpreter told me, the fourth, the fourth beast will be a fourth empire on earth, different from all the others. It will devour the whole earth, beat it down, and crush it. But when the court is convened, and the power of the fourth ruler is taken away by final and absolute destruction, then the self-rule and dominion and majesty of all the empires under the heavens will be given to the holy people of the Most High, whose reign will be everlasting, and whom all dominions will serve and obey. Your kingdom come. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Jonah. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I'm the lead pastor here at Zao MKE Church. Um, and this series that we're in, um, we're talking about the Lord's Prayer. Now, this was a really unusual reading uh, from Daniel. We don't do apocalyptic literature here that often at Zao, but I'm super stoked to tell you all about it in a moment. For now, I'd like to pose an idea to you that the Lord's Prayer is like a Beastie Boys song. Now, this might seem like a stretch, but I feel like if Jesus can get away with the kingdom is like a mustard seed, there's some room here for me to play. <laughs> the song that I think is like the Lord's Prayer is a 1986 song called Fight for Your Right. <laughs> Who knows it? You got to fight for your right <laughs> to party. Yes, and I'm not even dating myself because this song came out before I was born. But like the Lord's Prayer, this song is timeless. <laughs> it was written in the 80s when rock anthems and party anthems were like a really big deal. And they were coming out and people were like, yeah, party. And there was this big like frat boy energy about it. A lot of like, uh, it was, it's been referred to as Budweiser nihilism. And this energy, this like party culture energy, really bummed out the Beastie Boys. They were not about it. They thought it was stupid and childish. And so the Beastie Boys wrote a parody song called Fight for Your Right. And it is juvenile and overly simplistic and insulting on purpose because that's what they thought of party rock anthems. Now, the irony was lost on most listeners, and it became a huge party rock anthem. <laughs> In 1987, Mike D is quoted as saying, the one thing that upsets me 
is that we might have reinforced certain values of some people in our audience when our own values are actually totally different. There were tons of guys singing along to fight for your right who were oblivious to the fact that it was a total goof on them. But it was this massive success and people really got behind it. And increasingly, the audience at their concerts was full of party boys and, and that same energy that they were critiquing, the same type of frat dudes that they had been mocking. And they eventually kind of started to buy into this hype. So they were like, oh yeah, we're playing into these stereotypes. And they started, you know, emulating that publicly. So there's all these uh, images of them like, like, shotgunning beer and, you know, like Beastie Boys party image, imagery is like rampant during this time, the late 80s. So they bought into the hype, played up the stereotype, and they, they started to really become the dudes that they had mocked in the beginning. Years later, they had to work really hard to, to like backpedal and to say like, no, 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 okay, this is not what we meant. This was a critique. This is like social critique. This is satire but they kind of lost their footing for a second as they bought into the folks who saw it only as one-dimensional, only as an affirmation of the way that they were, instead of a critique of how shallow that culture was. So how is the Lord's Prayer like the Beastie Boys? Well, kingdom language is a lot like that song, Fight for Your Right. Kingdom language used in scripture and used by Jesus is often intended as a social commentary, a critique, a parody, even an insult. Jesus is juxtaposing the ways of God with the ways of the world and saying that kingdom, as it is defined by human beings, is not only flawed but illegitimate that the true king is God, but that God's reign looks nothing like the reign of human beings. And so kingdom language, when God says, or when Jesus says, God's kingdom come, my father's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, all of this is not only forecasting uh, an idea of things to come, but a direct and, and no-holds-barred critique of the way things were. Because the kingdoms on earth often purport themselves to be holy. Am I right? We've talked about this before when we talk about Jesus as the Prince of Peace and the idea of, of empires as promoting themselves as good and holy and just, as the ones providing peace through power and domination. So when Jesus talks about kingdom and says, I've got a kingdom for you, the subtext is because the kingdoms you've got are garbage. The kingdoms you have are empty, and they hold none of the promises that they claim. And so kingdom as parody, as irony, as insult, as social commentary is critical to all of Jesus' teachings, but especially in the Lord's Prayer. So what happens when we miss the joke? What happens when we have sanctuaries full of American flags and we sing unironically, God bless America, as our government invades other countries? We are those horrible frat boys. We are empty party culture. We are the ones who have lost the joke, who have lost the commentary. And we live into that stereotype. There are some who argue that because this has become so toxic, 
so linked to American empire that we need to do away with kingdom language altogether. It's pushback that I and Cameron and Zhao get a lot, actually, in progressive and liberationist spaces. Because a lot of folks want to throw out that term altogether. And as we talked about last week with Abba, Father, and Father language in the Lord's Prayer, that might be important for some to step aside from it, to say, this has become too hurtful. This is actually doing the opposite thing it intended, and it's causing harm. And so I understand where that's coming from. And so people will use the language of kingdom. Kingdom, no G. And to talk about kin is to talk about family. It captures a lot of what Jesus is talking about here, a different sort of order. The Lord's Prayer, as we talked about last week, is made about a household. The framework is of a, a justly run household. The imagery is of family. And so to put kingdom in that context is strange. It upends things and says the way things ought to be is more like family than the rule of empire. And so it makes sense that people would say kingdom, our kin, the body of our family. And so when you hear folks say kingdom, that is what they mean. And you may choose to use that word. The reason that I retain kingdom in addition to being just a general fan of satire, is the fact that it does capture something else at the heart, that challenge, that critique. Because you can have a kingdom under empire. You can have a sense of family and community that lives underground as resistance to the empire of the world, to imperialism. But the kingdom of God cannot be made complete until all other kingdoms fail and fall. The reign of God is not truly complete. The ways of God's rule, the new way of being, is not made manifest unless all other kings are thrown down from their thrones. And that is where we get Mary's cry in the Magnificat, that that is God's intention, to cast down the mighty from their thrones and to envision a different way, a new way of being. John Dominic Crossan writes, Retaining kingdom, but qualifying it as divine, is a way to show that it clearly, directly, and explicitly opposes all those earthly imperial kingdoms. It intends to present a specific alternative option to the imperialism that has been for so long the normalcy on earth. So other language, for me, just doesn't cut it. And... And this is a huge part of our tradition. We see kingdom language not being introduced to the Judeo-Christian tradition first by Jesus, but earlier by Daniel. Daniel is the passage, is, uh, Daniel's the book from which we got our passage today. And Daniel is a really complicated writer. Daniel is writing in a style that we don't really have anymore. It's called apocalyptic literature. And it's a way of making sense out of things that make no sense. It's also a way of communicating to and among the oppressed in coded language so that communications can hold some sense of secrecy, so that you can claim to be talking about something else. 
Now, the difficulty there is we thought that kingdom was hard to, to parse. We thought it was hard to hold on to that social commentary. Woo! Enter apocalyptic literature. <laughs> How many people have, have, have told you about the theories they have about the Antichrist? That mess comes from a misunderstanding apocalyptic literature. All of the seven-headed beasts, the horns, um, all of these images that we have, these frightening creatures, that in Scripture comes from apocalyptic literature, this coded language, this storytelling from oppressed to oppressed about the oppressors. It's metaphor, and sometimes it's very direct. So right now, we're in a passage from Daniel, and Daniel uh, was a second century BCE, so couple hundred years before Jesus, Jewish person in the court of a non-Jewish king. He was serving in an empire that he had been kind of drafted into, and he's a faithful person. He's following God, but this empire is not. And so Daniel has some major disagreements with the king and with the empire, Now, the empire has some major disagreements with Daniel. That's why he's the one that gets thrown into a lion's den. And so there's a lot of conflict here. But you can imagine how careful Daniel would have to be in talking about that empire that has that kind of power over him to throw him to the lions. And so when Daniel is writing, he talks about beasts. He's analyzing the empire's that led to the destruction of so much of God's world. And he writes in a way that's actually really consistent with uh, philosophy at the time. There was a lot of ideas about these four or five um, ages or epochs and these kingdoms that would come where the fifth one would either be the worst or the best, depending on which philosopher you trusted. So Daniel is talking in the midst of empire, and he's analyzing it, saying it's the fourth empire, that the first, second, and third had come before were identifiable. There's actual historical empires that you could trace this back to. But he, the empire he was under was the fourth and the current one. And he talks about these empires with beastly imagery, wild and vicious, cruel and powerful. And the fourth empire that he talks about, the one that he's in as he's writing is different. He uses that word a lot, different. This empire is different. And not only being animalistic imagery, but this empire that he's in, he talks about iron teeth and bronze claws that devour the whole earth. He talks about crushing and devouring and then trampling beneath their feet. And this makes a lot more sense when instead of projecting that into the future as some horrible beast that's going to come get to us, you understand Daniel's present, the empire of Alexander the Great, where the armies, the soldiers in the armies would carry 20-foot pikes, two-handed 20-foot pikes, and there'd be five ranks of pike heads that would protrude in advance of the actual human army. And so when that army came at you, it was was feet and feet and feet of spikes, metal teeth and claws that would come to devour the whole earth. This is the beast 
This is the empire that Daniel is preaching against, speaking against, warning against. Daniel is describing a beast that is so inhuman, so unrecognizable. That is empire. That is imperialism. And these empires would war with one another, would devour the earth, would crush it beneath their feet. And when one empire was coming to an end, another would battle for it. So Daniel talks about a fifth kingdom, the coming kingdom. But this kingdom is different. And instead of using animal imagery and the imagery of devouring or horns or metal or claws, Daniel uses the imagery of humanity, says that God will send the Son of Man, in our language, the Son of Humanity or a human being. And this divine kingdom that is going to be the ultimate kingdom, God's kingdom, you would think that Daniel would say, oh, these bad kingdoms, those are human kingdoms, but this new one is going to be of God. And instead, Daniel says, these bad kingdoms are are less than human, they are subhuman, they devour humanity and everything else. But this kingdom that is coming, it comes from God, and it is so human It will come to us from a human for all humanity. It's personified. And this is where we get some of the anticipation of the person of Jesus and this different way that God's kingdom comes. Not against humanity, not rejecting humanity, but through humanity. Because it is more human to live in the realm and reign of God than it is to live under imperialism. That imperialism is evidence that we have lost our way. That we are being less than human, less than what we were made for. So this new kingdom, this kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of God is also the kingdom of humanity. And this kingdom will be everlasting. It won't have to fight and battle. It won't have to devour and crush. Because God's kingdom creates And humanity, truly made in the image of God, does not destroy, but creates. And so you have this difference, this juxtaposition of Daniel saying, these previous kingdoms, these earthly kingdoms, they're beast-like, they're earth-born, they're transient and bloody. But this kingdom of God, it's human-like, it's heaven-born, it's everlasting. This is a different kind of kingdom altogether, and it requires that all other brutal kingdoms cease. And in the context of the Lord's Prayer, where we're saying words like kingdom, but it's in the context of a household, we can start to imagine what the rule of God looks like differently. And actually, that's what Crossan argues, is that when we see the word kingdom, we should think more the reign or perhaps the ruling style of God. It's a different order. It's a different kind of power. It's God's system at work, which is fundamentally different and also fundamentally more human than the one that we're experiencing now. So what is this kingdom that first appears in Daniel, crops up all over Jesus' teaching, and Jesus commands us, to pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. 
Well, Jesus spends a lot of his ministry describing the kingdom. Like a lot of Jesus' teaching, it relies on metaphor because it is beyond our realm of comprehension. We cannot imagine a world without empire. We cannot imagine a world where we are fully human. So we approximate it with ideas and metaphors and parables. So Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed or yeast that leavens bread or a net that gathers fish or a pearl of great price or seeds scattered on the ground. And these images are really different than images of empire which comes to devour and to trample. This is beyond our imagination, but it is also fundamentally human, and so it is natural to us. And our deepest, truest God-given impulses are towards God's heavenly kingdom, not this mess of empire on earth. Kingdom means to throw down our rulers, but kingdom means to make us more human, not to turn us into those iron and bronze beasts. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, a tiny seed, a sort of insignificant seed. But a mustard seed, it's powerful. It's not powerful like the seed of a mighty tree. Jesus would have used uh, probably cedars, cedar trees, these huge trees that would have grown near that area. That's not what the kingdom is like. Has anyone ever seen a mustard bush? You can guess from the word bush, it's not that mighty looking. (laughs) But it spreads. Mustard plants grow like weeds. Leavening is the same, yeast. The metaphor is that the kingdom is like yeast, a tiny amount of yeast and a huge amount of flour. Like, Jesus really likes to to draw these exaggerations out in some of these parables. It's an absurd amount of flour that he's talking about with like this tiny amount of yeast that can leaven a whole batch of flour. Yeast, so I don't know if we've got any bakers here, but yeast is is tiny, but it it changes the entire shape of anything that you're going you're gonna to bake. And you, you need just a tiny amount of yeast compared to how much flour you need in order to have that effect. I think a more present um, example, because, and I just want to note real quickly, these are both like negative ideas. The Pharisees sometimes are described as, as yeast that leaven the whole bunch. It's something that goes bad and is contagious. So, I like to use the metaphor, the kingdom of God is like one bad apple that spoils the bunch. Because Jesus is talking about it in these subversive ways, these things that spread. The kingdom of God is like patient zero that starts the zombie apocalypse. The kingdom of God is something that cannot be contained, and it doesn't come through lightning or through grandness. It doesn't sit on a throne in the palace. It grows up from the ground. It spreads like a weed that can't be contained. It's that thing that you think you can write off until it has taken over. And then it provides. It is abundant and powerful. It's pungent like mustard. The kingdom comes from the earth comes from the depths of our truest self, 
comes from the image of God in us. And the kingdom of God is truly human. And the kingdoms of this earth don't even look twice at it because they don't understand the power of God through humanity or the beautiful uh, humanness that God created. And that's why they don't think twice when God comes to us as human. An empire thinks, oh, we'll just slaughter you like we do everyone else. But that doesn't work. Jesus rises. Jesus transcends. Jesus ascends. Jesus is and was and always will be. And the kingdom of God is at work spreading like a virus, undermining those systems of power that think that they are so great and so grand and that they with their teeth and claws can devour God's creation. But they don't know that their time is up. That is what we declare when we say, your kingdom come. When we pray to God and say, your kingdom come, we denounce every other so-called kingdom. We declare the victory of God's kingdom, which is already and not yet. And that is the other tension held in kingdom that Jesus talks about a lot. Jesus says, the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is near. The kingdom is now. The kingdom is in you. And all of these overlapping and seemingly contradicting contradicting statements that Jesus makes about the kingdom are all simultaneously true. That God's kingdom is coming. That in the end, all things will be made right. That the bushes, those mustard seeds grew, will uproot palaces and empires, will spread beyond our wildest imagination and create something grander than we thought possible, which looks nothing like what we call grand. And it has begun. It is here. It is in you. It is the Imago Dei, the image of God, the blessedness that you were given at creation. It is the humanness of Jesus that emerges in an inhuman world. You contain the kingdom. You are the seed. You are already holy and pure and, you know, not yet. And so we pray. Your kingdom come. We long for it. We see it. We feel it. It's here. We want it. We trust it. And every time we do so, every time we declare your kingdom come to our God, We divest just a little bit more from the kingdoms of this earth. But only if we're in on the joke. Will you pray with me? God of power and might. God of the lowly, of the soft, gentle, and small. God of the mustard seed. God of the leaven. Come and break into our world in unexpected ways. Make us your seeds, your leavening, your net. Change us, Lord. Make us more fit for your kingdom than for the kingdoms of this world. And Lord God, as your kingdom, your different way of being, your more human rule emerges, give us the strength and courage to oppose with all we have those false kings and false kingdoms of this earth. That those iron teeth and bronze claws may turn to dust 
and that the mustard seed and mustard bushes of your kingdom would grow wild. Amen. Amen.